0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Architecture Time, radio for the design-obsessed, hopeless romantics of the built environment. I'm your host, Mike Lavalli from EvolvingArchitect.com. We share with you brief stories, news, profiles, and projects from around the net, showcasing not only what the profession of architecture has to offer, but also helping you evolve your own career one episode at a time. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Architecture Time. So I bet you can't wait. You cannot wait one more minute, one more second, to know more about the Project of the Week, can you? No, I, I figured not, so let's just get right into it. Um, today we bring you a fantastic design precedent to motivate your own design work and then get your week started with a bang. And this week's Project of the Week is Emerson College Los Angeles by Morphosis. And if you're unfamiliar with Morphosis, it's the firm led by Pritzker Prize recipient Tom Mayne. And if you're not familiar with the firm, I really recommend that you go and you look at their website. They have a very, very robust set of um, documentation, not only of the final products that they come up with, the buildings, the, the sorts of projects that you know captivate us in the first place, but They also have a wide range of documentation showing the thought process behind a lot of what they do um, from models to drawings to um, there are a lot of gorgeous photos but the, the breadth of knowledge that's sort of being shared here is a lot and I think that you can sort of take a lot from just even exploring their website so that'll be in the show notes but the reason why we're looking at this project in particular aside from the fact that i just really like the work that comes out of this firm is that it's another project that i think captivates the imagination and it works against a lot of parameters and it finds a way to work within those parameters to create something that's really memorable and really great. It's something special that has won several awards since it was built in 2014 and for good reason. I mean, it's it's a fun little project and it's a project that, I shouldn't say little, you know, it's a it's a moderate size project, but the amount of stuff that has been sort of Compacted into the suitcase of the, of the overall building is very impressive. And for them to come up with the forms that they do and still get all the program inside the sort of overall shell, I'm really impressed. And I think that you'll be impressed too. So I want to essentially read the description from the architects themselves, Morphosis, and then talk about it a little bit and you know give you some more thoughts based on what I'm seeing in front of me right now Um, but also just talk through it a little bit and help you understand why you might want to look at this precedent yourself. A college campus condensed into an urban site. Based in Boston, Massachusetts, Emerson is renowned for its communication and arts curriculum. Located in the heart of Hollywood, Emerson College, Los Angeles, ELA, defines the college's identity in the center of the entertainment industry and the second largest city in the United States. The new facility establishes a permanent home on Sunset Boulevard for Emerson College's existing undergraduate internship program that will extend the ELA experience to students studying in any of the seven disciplines that are offered through the School of Communication and the School of Arts. Additionally, ELA will offer postgraduate, certificate, and professional study programs. The new facility will also host workshops, lectures, and other events to engage with alumni and the LA community. Bringing student housing, instructional facilities, and administrative offices to one location, ELA condenses the diversity of a college campus into an urban site. Evoking the concentrated energy of East Coast Metropolitan Centers in an iconic Los Angeles setting, a rich dialogue dialogue emerges between students' educational background and their professional futures. Fundamental to the Emerson-Los Angeles experience, student living circumstances give structure to the overall building, housing up to 217 students, the domestic zones frame a dynamic core dedicated to creativity, learning, and social interaction. Composed of two slender residential towers bridged by a multi-use platform, the 10-story square frame encloses a central open volume to create a flexible outdoor room. A sculpted form housing classrooms and administrative offices weaves through the void, defining multi-level terraces and active interstitial spaces that foster informal social activity and create cross-pollination. Looking out into the multi-level terrace, exterior corridors to the student suites and common rooms are shaded by an undulating textured metal scrim spanning the full height of the tower's interior face. Looking to the local context, the center finds provocative precedent in the interiority of Hollywood film studios, where hourly regular facades house flexible fantastical spaces within with rigging for screens, media connections, sound, and lighting incorporated into the framework. The upper platform serves as a flexible armature for outdoor performances, transforming the undulating scrim into a dynamic visual backdrop. The entire building becomes a stage set for student films, screenings, and industry events, with the Hollywood sign, the city of Los Angeles, and the Pacific Ocean in the distance providing the added scenery. Anticipated to achieve lead gold rating, the new center champions Emerson's commitment to both sustainable design and the community responsibility. Defining the building's facades to the east and west, the residential towers feature an active exterior skin responding to local weather conditions. The automated sun shading system opens and closes horizontal fins outside the high-performance glass curtain wall to minimize heat gain while maximizing daylight and views. Further green initiatives include the use of recycled and rapidly renewable rapidly renewable building materials, installation of efficient fixtures to reduce water use by 40%, energy savings in heating and cooling through a passive balance system, and a building management and commissioning infrastructure to monitor and optimize efficiency of all systems. The program includes ground floor cafe and retail, classrooms, screening and mixing rooms, outdoor terraces, housing for 270, 217 students, Faculty and staff amenities, including a fitness center, lounge, and kitchen, bike facilities, and three levels of below-grade parking. Designed from 2008 to 11, and construction from 2011 to 14. So, the things that really stand out to me are that this is kind of a a tight, tight block, and it has to do a lot of things. You know, it has to be a It has to essentially be a place for all purposes of, you know, as it starts out, college campus condensed into an urban site, housing, instructional facilities, and admin offices in all one location, Um, and it all has to be sort of condensed into into this one package. So... From that standpoint, there's a lot going on, but there's also this idea of creating a stage, you know as it as it describes in the sort of way it's written, you're making a framework against which you know this this overall sort of box shape that allows the sort of let's say more playful undulating shapes within to really really pop you know it's there's a if you were looking at it from up the street or down the street you wouldn't really think too much of it it's a building with a sun shading device on it and you can't really tell unless you're sort of either kind of on the oblique or sort of in front of it that there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on and there's something that's fascinating about that because it's not a building that really like you really have to experience it from different angles to get the added effects but it's almost like it's creating its own world within itself so that the people inside are you know they're they're using it in a very specific way but it's it's it is setting a stage for all the activities that happen inside. You know, it's, if you look at it straight on um, across the street, there's sort of this vantage point where um, it looks like the, the front of the building is essentially at an intersection. And if you're sort of driving up to the building, you can kind of see you straight into classrooms and all these sort of more fanciful kinds of shapes and, and volumes and they look like they're sort of kind of dancing with each other and then next to that on the next layer it there's like this undulating sort of screen system of of different metal shapes that create this sort of wave-like pattern inside and that creates another level and then on the outside level of the you know the the more regular shell there's just this big boxy figure and because everything is so solid on the very outside edge and the sort of front and back of the actual building itself is something completely different um, there's you can actually see straight through the the sort of the let's say underneath the top of the building there's like this there's like this void that's sort of allowed to exist um, now, this is Los Angeles, so you know, you're know you not worried about as much um, precipitation or rain as you would in other places, so they can kind of do these sorts of things. But it's this sort of fanciful, fanciful um, sort of dreamlike characteristic to the building that uh, really captivates me, at least. I think the one thing to sort of take from this is that it's... It's a project that is a little bit, let's say, it's daring. It's captivating, as I keep saying. Um, It's a little bit unexpected in some ways because the building, depending on where you're coming from, looks completely different. Um, When you're standing in this sort of atrium space in the middle, you know, it's a completely different experience than if you were on the, let's say, the outside, um, you know, up or down the street, like I was saying before. You get this sense that there's just this little world that these students get to kind of play in and that they get to experience all their own. And that Emerson, as a college, you know, a satellite college here in Los Angeles, is trying to really make the students and the faculty and the staff all feel like they're in a very creative energized place so that they can it's essentially facilitating the learning experience and the and the growth of the students and of their educations and I love this project because its it's just something that speaks to the power of what architecture can be and You know, I highly recommend that you guys look into it more. Again, this is the Emerson College Los Angeles Center. Um, it's right on Sunset Boulevard and it's by Morphosis Architects. And that's really all I have to say about this one. There you know, there's obviously a lot going on in terms of sustainability and in terms of the the way that the spaces are designed to maximize the efficiency of the building. But I think this, for me, is a project more that speaks to, let's say, a an interest in the unexpected in some ways and, and surprise and creating a stage and a framework upon which you know, the people who use the building can really thrive. So there you go. and now the news okay so i just i really like saying that and maybe it's going to stick I, I don't know but i if you could see me in my little recording office right now um i've been testing that for time after time after time and who knows maybe it'll stick maybe it won't but for now it's staying um so we got some really great articles to to read through today um Important news that I think you'll want to know about, and then we'll discuss. so this first piece is a somber one, but it's important to remember the person that it's about and not just immediately go to the sadness and the and the the hurt necessarily and the sorrow, but to remember the life of this person and to remember sort of the kinds of things i you know I think of an architect's life, especially as something that is a this is going to sound a little bit maybe dramatic but as a as a gift to the world because architects as creatives and as designers are doing their best to make the world a better place and I truly believe that and I don't think that this person is any exception and from the outpouring of sort of feelings that I've never I never met the gentleman in, in my own life but Seeing all the outpouring of positive feelings and memories of John Jackson, I I really feel for his family, and um, you know my heart goes out to anybody who who knew him. And I just wanted to read this uh, obituary that Architect Magazine kind of came up with, and here we go. John Jackson, longtime principal at Boland Sywinski Jackson, dies at sixty-seven. A statement released by the firm highlighted the retired name partner's dedication to education, both within the projects he worked on and his mentorship within the firm. Retired Boland Sewinski Jackson, PCJ principal, John C. Jackson, FAA, died on August 17th, according to a statement released by the firm. He was 67. Jackson was born on March 13, 1951, and went on to earn a BArch from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in 1974. Jackson joined the firm where he would spend his career that same year, and became a named partner in 1991. In 2008, Jackson was inducted into the American Institute of Architects College of Fellows. The firm's statement highlighted Jackson's work in education projects including Carnegie Mellon's University's Software Engineering Institute, 1987, and the Intelligent Workplace at the Center for Building Performance and Diagnostics, Diagnostics 1994. He retired from BCJ in t- 2013. The breadth and complexity of BCJ's work over the years is a testimony to the skills of John Jackson as not only a great individual architect, but of a manager, mentor, motivator, and collaborator. Dick Riddleman, a co-founder of Burt Hill, acquired by Stantec in 2010, who died in 2015, once said about Jackson, according to BCJ's statement, John has matured from one who creates great architecture to one who creates the environment in which the great architecture can occur, end quote. Jackson's death was pre- preceded by fellow named member, Bernard Sawinski, who died in 2011. The remaining of the trio, founding principal, Pierre Bolin, FAAA, stepped down from a leadership role last November. Jackson's wife, Roxanne Sherbeck, was also a principal at the firm, and together the couple managed the firm's Pittsburgh office for many years, according to a post in the firm's Instagram. Sherbeck died in August of last year. Remembrances and condolences were posted on the firm's announcements of Jackson's death on Facebook and Instagram. So that's the obituary from Architect Magazine, but I also wanted to read sort of a firm description in general from Architect Magazine when in 2010, uh, Peter Bolin um, was given the AAA Gold Medal and from the architect. Boland sawinski jackson is noted for elegant and humane design, ranging from modest houses to large academic, civic, cultural, commercial, and corporate buildings. Our principals and staff are deeply committed to active collaboration with our clients, emphasizing thorough research and analysis for each situation's particular human, technical, and economic circumstances. The result is exceptional architecture that resonates within its place. From the beginning, energy efficiency and environmental sensitivity have been integral to the firm's design culture. We continue to innovate, combining advanced building systems to harvest the site's distinct climate and place to make the most of sun for light and heat, wind for ventilation, and the land for insulation. We view sustainable design as the right thing to do ethically, but also as an opportunity to make a richer, more powerful architecture. Since 1965, Bolin-Sinwin C. Jackson has received more than 625 regional, national, and international design awards, including three committee on the Environment Top 10 Green Project Awards from the American Institute of Architects. We are also the recipients of the AIA Architecture Firm Award, the most prestigious honor bestowed upon an architectural practice by the Institute. In addition, our founding principal, Peter Bolin, was awarded the AIA Gold Medal, the highest honor an individual American architect can receive so you know i I think that this says a lot to the kind of leadership in a in a firm of of this caliber, and again i I never met John Jackson. I didn't have the pleasure of knowing him, but from the at least the kinds of um, things I've been reading on facebook um it's it's really especially as somebody who I personally think that mentorship is one of the key important um, sort of ways that architects can give back to the profession, you know, to pass it on, to basically keep the, the progression of the practice of architecture moving is by teaching the generation after us. And in a, a tweet that uh, Rosa Sheng, FAA, posted, Quote, John C. Jackson hired me in 1997 to join Bull and Bowlesiewinski Jackson. He was not only just just and fair, but a true champion for my career development and instrumental in supporting what became the San Francisco office where I spent 20 years of my career. Rest in peace, John. You are missed. So, I don't think there's anything more to say that, about that. But it's it's a it's a wonderful firm. It's a firm that has done a lot of important work and. Um, I I get this feeling that John Jackson will be deeply missed. All right, so let's move on to the next article. This is a, sort of a fascinating take on an observation on fast food chains and the sort of branding that's going on with the kinds of new architecture that's popping up all around the world. And it's entitled Fast Food Slowed Down, What's Behind All the Redesigns? And Is It Enough? By Dimastoy from Arc Daily. Some restaurants don't need a review to get attention. You might know them for their longevity, their presence, or even their advertisements. But most importantly, whether it's their grand luminous logo or the building's prominent architecture and color palette, these franchises are more or less the same. The menu, the music, the interior design, etc. Wherever you are, be it London, Lima, or Lahore. Recently, however, a few of these places have begun to shift away from the quote, architectural stamp, end quote, that they use in all their branches, hiring design firms to rebrand their restaurants and, by extension, their image. This bespoke approach can result in outposts that are typically site specific, understated, and individual. For users, it may be a point of curiosity, a reason to revisit what you think you already know. For the brand, it's an attempt to cater to the evolving tastes, culinary and otherwise. Without having to alter the core product the end result a high-end looking restaurant that still caters to all when designing a restaurant regardless of the type of cuisine two factors must be considered the first is the narrative or the concept behind the design the second is the operation and functionality of the space designing a restaurant from interior to facade is about having a solid concept that encapsulates the restaurant's identity in successful cases this permeates throughout the entire space even down to the details to be able to provide customers with a proper experience, many questions have to be answered. What should guests see, hear, or smell when they arrive? How should they enter the restaurant and be seated? How many tables are there, and how distant are they from one another? How is the food delivered? Casual and fast food establishments are all about providing a quick service with quick turnover, and the operating operations have historically been designed to a science and have implemented almost as rigorously. Upon entering any typical fast food establishment, the first impression is one of lighting and colors. Fast food restaurants are notoriously well-lit, often relying on stark whites, intended to imply cleanliness, and vibrant shades of red, yellow, and orange, colors known to have an, effective, an effect on appetite and mood. Music is played loud, and seats are intentionally uncomfortable to dissuade prolonged visits and keep people moving through the space, allowing more customers to comfortably pass through. In recent years, however, fast food restaurants, particularly flagship locations, have shifted away from this approach, instead opting for more or less branded and softer designs. The overall operational system, however, is left intact, as the aim of these renovations is not to change the business or core product, but to catch up with the evolving taste of the clientele. Perhaps the most famous example of fast food redesign comes from Rotterdam-based May Architects. Their take on the brand, renovating what was once known as Rotterdam's ugliest building, renovated a typical mid-century fast food joint into a glowing light box on the corner of one of the city's main boulevards. The two-story structure boasts a spiraling stair and is clad in perforated gold panels, allowing the building to shine in the day and glow after sundown. The building is not just a successful example of brand design, redesign, but also of timely urban intervention. It was completed at nearly the same time as timber Timmerhaus, who is located just around the corner. Quote, Our task was to redesign the McDonald's and make it blend into its surroundings. The new building volume has been carefully detailed and articulated to open up the views of the monumental post office behind it. As a result, the pavilion has the most compact possible core with glazed facades all around. A fully transparent lobby with entrances on three sides makes it seem as though the public space flows through the building. May architects. End quote. McDonald's Champlain's Paris, France. When Patrick Norgut was put in charge of rebranding the McDonald's franchise in France, he made sure that each branch reflected the nature of the site and catered to the people's needs, all while staying loyal to the McDonald's brand. The Champs-Élysées location is an exercise in tasteful restraint, moody lighting, and a welcoming atmosphere that extends beyond the register. Since the boulevard is a lavish, high-quality area, the vibrant and occasionally garish reds and yellows, typically of the brand, were included only periodically in concrete panels and metal sheets, offering texture and sheen as well as tone. Quote, this project came about as a result of the new study carried out over two years of the major changes of our time, the integration of new habits and new technologies. It has a radical and resolutely modern approach that affords clients of the Champs-Élysées location, a high quality setting and convenience of use on two levels inside of the new deck outside. Patrick Nordgut. McDonald's, Battoe, Georgia. Where other projects pers- pursued an approach of subtlety, perhaps one of the m- more architecturally daring projects comes from architect Georgie Kamaldeze. His interpretation of McDonald's brand, located in Batumi, Georgia, entwines the architecture of the restaurant with the urbanism of its surroundings. The restaurant, situated on two levels, one particularly underground, is a spiral of glass whose backside hides, of all things, a fuel station. Quote, given the central location and therefore importance of the site, it was decided to give back as much as possible for recreation to the city by eliminating the footprint of the building and vehicular circulation. This resulted in one volume with all programs compressed within. Giorgi, Kamalze, Burger King in Singapore. Similarly, Burger King Singapore branch also underwent a modern takeover, inspired by the city's landscapes. Design firm Out of Stock transformed the Burger King Garden Grill into an earth tone garden inspired burger joint. Quote The goal of the project was to create a new interior identity for Burger King. Some key points mentioned by BK was that they wanted a warm and welcoming store that would appeal to a wired audience, teens, young adults, as well as families with children. The design should stand out at the same time be accessible for a man on the street, out of stock, end quote. Starbucks, Chelsea, New York City. Where out-of-stock Singapore Burger King used nature as the keystone for their site-specific concept, Starbucks in New York City take their inspiration wholly and unabashedly from the urban. The brand has recently reworked multiple clientele's design performances or preferences. The result is coffee shops that are often aren't even recognizable as a Starbucks. Their Chelsea location, for instance, is a visual translation of the city's cultural heritage and art scene. The design is inspired by the coffee plant itself and incorporates a rotating wall with the space populated with curated art pieces in collaboration with Uprise Art. Quote, Chelsea's art scene is unlike anywhere else in the world, a vibrant center of aesthetic and conceptual innovation. We know many gallerists and artists work in the neighborhood, will visit the store, so it's important for us to curate relevant artwork within the space that also reflects the art discourse happening just outside our walls. Seijun, founder of Uprise Art. End quote. Starbucks, japan another unique starbucks branch can be found on the opposite side of the globe in japan this houses one of the most significant shrines in japan the approach to the town is flanked by a series of traditional japanese buildings when kengo kuma and his office took on the project the primary goal was to make sure that the new structure reflected the surroundings and the deep cultural heritage of the area quote location of the starbucks is somewhere somehow characteristic as it stands on the main approach to zaifu Temmangu, one of the most major shrines in Japan. The project aimed to t- make a structure that harmonizes with such townscape using a unique system of weaving thin woods diagonally, Kengo Kuma and Associates, End quote. While these examples suggest an evolving approach from the brands, it's notable that they are changes to the architecture, not to product or operations. If traditionally in-and-out approach to delivery remains, does dimmed lighting and earthy hues make a difference to the user? The changing taste of a savvy, typical urban clientele may soon force brands to embrace design and redesign in more profound ways. It's a good thing that that's what architects do best. So I really like this article because it, it well, first of all, it brings you sort of out-of-the-norm projects from you know the biggest brands in the world, McDonald's, Starbucks, Burger King. And a lot of these are in very sort of Urban areas; they're in very um, high traffic areas, and it's interesting because they they all elicit sort of a a a very high quality flair to them. You know, all the the same sort of branding colors and sort of general identity is there, but the the brand takes on something a little bit more because the architecture is allowed to flourish and and embellish on the the high quality materials and the, and the forms to create something that's unexpected. This show you something that is a little bit above and beyond. And, you know, it's not that some of these restaurants don't have nice stores otherwise, but there's something about looking at an image, um, like from this Burger King that's in Singapore and thinking to yourself, why can't, all of them be this way. Um, Even if, you know, the one contention at the end of the article is like basically, okay, they're doing all this great stuff, but at the end of the day, it's still a Starbucks. It's still a Burger King. It's still a McDonald's. They still operate essentially the same. And on the one hand, yes, I, I agree that that's probably the case, but there's something about the quality of the architecture that at the very least, if, if this is the path that it's going on, it, it's better than the alternative, where you have these sort of cookie cutter boxes that just sort of pop up, and those become the stores and the shops and the and the everyday things. You know, there's a there's a, an extra level here of care to the materiality to the quality that I think personally is uh, a lot of the the grab for somebody to walk into one of these shops. You know, if I walked by a, I don't really like. Um, necessarily eating a lot of fast food anymore. But I, I think that if I was walking by, I'd at least be intrigued because it's not it's outside the norm. And although it's sad that it has to be that way, that there's so many of these other sort of generic versions of these restaurants out in the world, the fact that there is a, a care or an effort to it, really sort of draws you in it's the same way i think about like the apple store when you go to your local mall it's it's something that is different than a lot of the other shops because it's very open it's very um, pure in many cases and everything's just sort of out there you know for you to look at and there's lots of clean lines and there's lots of glass and it's just something that's appealing to the eye so at the very least, I think that they have something here in terms of what they're doing for the design and bringing that into the forefront of, of their branding. And I guess we'll have to see if it works, but for me, it's it's working pretty well. Our final story comes from Arc Daily by Neil Patrick Walsh. Snowettas, a house to die in, blocked by Oslo counselors. Oslo counselors have voted to halt the Snowetta design, a house to die in. Located on the grounds of painter Edward Munch's former house and workshop in Western Oslo, the recent vote reported by Norwegian newspaper The Local would appear to put an end to the eight-year collaborative process be- between Snøhetta and Norwegian artist Bjorn Melgaard. A House to Die In has become the most controversial building proposal in recent Norwegian history due to its architectural form and how it honors the legacy of one of Norway's most famous artists. The scheme was designed by Snowetta and Melgard to be both a sculptural piece and a house for Melgard and his parents. Throughout the near decade-long design process, the scheme has gone through several interactions and placements, with Melgard previously agreeing to move the house so that only the access road would encroach on public land. While accepted by national and city conservation authorities, the new plans have been rejected by the city's politicians, who say the project's placement is their concern rather than the architectural form quote, we want the site where the death house was intended to be placed to remain to a green area for the benefit of the local population, and we encourage Bjarn to find a new site for the project, Oslo City Council statement, end quote. Reacting to the news, Melgar told the Afton newspaper, quote, there is great opposition to new things in Norway, end quote. The scheme was generated much editorial discussion as of late, with the New York Times describing the building as a UFO, Earlier this year, the project was put on public display by Selveg Art Collection, showcasing the art, artistic process of designing the unique home. You can read a deeper explanation as to why a house to die in is one of Norway, Norway's most controversial buildings in recent coverage um, in another article that I'll leave in the notes as well. And it's a it's a fascinating project. It's a weird project. <laughs> by no means is it um, a let's say an, uh, what you would quote call a normal building. Um it's it looks like a I mean, New York Times description of it looking like a UFO isn't completely off base. It looks like a large sort of rock formation with sort of um light lines kind of permeating throughout. Almost like it's a um uh like a a dark sort of like say um I'm trying to think of the the right kind of stone here but maybe like a like a almost like a charcoal um that has light kind of emanating throughout it and it's sitting resting on top of these sort of uh, sculptural creatures that look like they came out of some kind of um abstract vision um very sort of Animal-like and and they're very creative, but it's it's very it's very intense as a as a graphic as an image as an image, and it's something that isn't probably easy to take in. And I don't know if necessarily the entire story is here in terms of how all this is un, unveiling. But really, what it comes down to is that this project is really important to the people of Norway, and it, it's probably important to a lot of people just in the sense that they don't want it to be done improperly and they also don't want it to sort of um, infringe on a lot of the, um, the, the history of uh, Edward Munch's, Munch's um, uh, estate. And I could see that. I can understand that completely, that you don't want to overdo it. Um, I think a lot of, I mean, it's a very, again, I said it's a very striking project and I'm not completely surprised that it has had this much sort of controversy because it's not something that you see every day. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't exist. It just means that, Projects like this are very, very difficult to essentially prove themselves to the everyday person, and it's not even just somebody who doesn't necessarily understand architecture or appreciate architecture. It's somebody, this is borderline art, and I would argue that even though I don't necessarily consider all architecture to be art, this piece in particular has less to do about the functionality and more to do about the sculptural creativity and the artists, artist's sort of interpretation of what the idea should be versus something that was more pragmatic. And when you go down that realm, I think especially in design, it's hard for people to always follow with you in in your, your pursuit. It's hard for people to latch onto the idea because it's such a very, um, bold and significant creation that, you know, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is here, but I could see why it's that provocative. It's, it's very striking. I uh, hope you definitely look more into this and the, for the reading, the article is actually really great. It's just way too long for me to talk about here about sort of, more of the controversy uh, behind the project. And again, it'll be in the show notes and I hope you enjoyed these stories through today. Um, I know I had a lot of fun uh, reading them and, and sharing them with you guys. So if you're, if you have any more comments, uh, feel free to reach out to me at Archivalley. Valley, A-R-C-H-I-V-A-L-L-E-Y. All right. So let's talk a little bit about careers in the career corner here. So This is a segment dedicated to understanding more about important architects in the profession who have either given a lot to the profession through the works that they've done or have significantly contributed to the built environment in some way. And we basically go over their their life and, and the work that they've done. And it's meant to inspire you to research them more, learn more about how they sort of Came to do what they did and learn from those precedents in a way that helps inform your own either design sensibilities or their career path or what have you. So today we have a very important character on the docket, and that is Mies van der Rohe. And I really like Mies. You know, Mies gets some flack sometimes, you know, maybe. Maybe a little bit too uh, too minimalist, but I think overall his work is very, very pure and very clean and very uh, straightforward in a lot of ways. And the detailing is extraordinary in a lot of his projects, Barcelona Pavilion, uh, etc. And there are just a lot of things to like about Mies. So let's talk about Mies. Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, original name Maria Ludwig Michael Mies, born March 27, 1886 in Aachen, Germany, died August 17, 1969 in Chicago, Illinois. German-born American architect, whose rectilinear forms crafted in elegant simplicity, epitomized the international style of architecture, early training, and influence. Ludwig Mies, he had added his mother's surname, van der Rohe, when he had established himself as an architect was the son of a master Mason who owned a small stonecutter shop. Meist helped his father on various construction sites, but never received any formal architectural training at age 15. He was apprenticed to several Austrian architects for whom he sketched outlines of architectural ornaments, which the plasterers, plasterers would then form into stucco building decorations. This task developed his skill for linear drawings. Which he would use to produce some of the finest architectural renderings of this time in 1905 at the age of 19 Mies went to work for the architect in berlin for an architect in berlin but he soon left his job to become an apprentice with bruno paul a leading furniture designer who worked in the art nouveau style of the period two years later he received his first commission a traditional suburban house its perfect execution so impressed peter Behrens that germany's most progressive architect that he offered the 21-year-old Mies a job in his office where at about the same time Walter Gropius and Le Corbusier were also just starting out. Behrens was a leading member of the Ducher Werkbund, and through him Mies established ties with this association of artists and craftsmen which advocated a marriage between art and technology. The Werkbund's members envisioned a new design tradition that would give form and meaning to machine-made things including machine-made buildings This new and functional design for the industrial age would then give birth to a Gestamp culture, that is, a new universal culture in a totally reformed man-made environment. These ideas motivated the modern movement in architecture that would soon culminate in the so-called international style of modern architecture. In Berlin, Mies was influenced by Barron's emulation of the pure, bold, and simple neoclassic forms of the early 19th century German architect Karl Friedrich Schinkel. It was Schinkel who became the decisive influence on Mies' search for an architecture of gesamtkultur. Throughout his life, the elegant clarity of Schinkel's building seemed to Mies to embody most perfectly the form of the 20th century urban environment. Another decisive influence was Heinrich Prudus Berlage a pioneer of modern Dutch architecture whom Mies met in 1911. Berlage's work inspired Mies' own love for brick, and the Dutch master's philosophy inspired Mies' credo of architectural integrity and structural honesty. With regard to structural honesty, Mies would eventually go further than anyone else to, build, to make the actual rather than apparent or dramatized supports of his buildings their dominant architectural features. Work After World War I During World War I, Mies served as an enlisted man, building bridges and roads in the Balkans. When he returned to Berlin in 1918, the fall of the German monarchy and the birth of the democratic Weimar Republic helped inspire a prodigious burst of new creativity among modernist artists and architects. Architecture, painting, and sculpture, according to the Manifesto of the Bauhaus, the avant-garde school of the arts just established in Weimar, were not only moving towards new forms of expression, but were becoming internationalized in scope. Mies joined in several modernist architectural groups at this time and organized many many exhibitions, but there was virtually nothing for him to build. His foremost building of the period, an expressionist memorial to the murdered communist leaders Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, dedicated in 1926, was demolished by the Nazis. Mies' most important work of these years remained on paper, in fact, these theoretical projects, rendered in a series of drawings and sketches that are now in the New York Museum of Modern Art, foreshadow the entire range of the later work. The Friedrichstrasse office building, in 1919, was one of the first proposals of an all steel and glass building and established the Miesian principle of, quote, skin and bones construction, end quote. The glass skyscraper, in 1921, applied his idea to a glass skyscraper whose transparent facade reveals the building's underlying steel structure. Both of these building designs were uncomprom- uncompromising in their utter simplicity. Other theoretical studies explored the potentials of cr- concrete and brick construction, and of the steel form and Frank Lloyd Wright concepts. Few unbuilt buildings surpassed them in a variety of ideas and their influence on the development of the architecture of the time. This influence was apparent at the first post-war Werkbund exposition at Weissenhof near Stuttgart in 1927. The exhibition consisted of a housing demonstration project planned by Mies, who had by then become the Werkbund's vice president. Europe's 16 leading mo- modernist architects, including Le Corbusier and Mies himself, designed various homes and apartment buildings, 33 units in all. The demonstrated, above all, that the various architectural factions of early post-war years had now merged into a signal, signal, single movement. The international style was born. Though not a popular success, the exposition was a critical one, and Europe's elite suddenly became to, began to commission modern villas such as Mises' House, 1930, at Renault, now in Czech Republic. Perhaps Mises' most famous executed project of the interwar period in Europe was the German Pavilion, also known as the Barcelona Pavilion, which was commissioned by the German government of, for the 1929 International Exposition in Barcelona, demolished 1930, reconstructed 1986, it exhibited a sequence of marvelous spaces by on a 175-by-56-foot travertine platform, partly under a thin roof and partly outdoors, supported by chrome steel columns. The spaces were defined by walls of honey-colored onyx, green tinian marble, and frosted glass and contained nothing but a pool, in which stood a sculptural nude and a few of the chairs Mies had designed for the pavilion. These cantilevered steel chairs, which are known as Barcelona chairs, became an instant classic of the 20th century furniture design. In 1930, Mies was appointed director of the Bauhaus, which had moved from Weimar to Dessau in 1925. Between Nazi attacks from outside and left-wing student revolts from within, the school was in a state of perpetual turmoil. Though not to cut out to be an administrator, Mies soon won respect as a stern but superb teacher, When the Nazis closed the school in 1939, Mies tried for a few months to continue it in Berlin, but modern design was was hopeless as a cause in Hitler's totalitarian state as was political freedom. Mies announced the end of the Bauhaus in Berlin late in 1933 before the Nazis could close it. Mies in America Four years later in 1937, again after working mainly on projects that were never built, Mies moved to the United States. Soon after he arrived in the country, he gained an appointment as director of the School of Architecture at Chicago's Armour Institute, later the Illinois Institute of Technology. Meese served as the school's director for the next 20 years, and by the time he retired in 1958, the school had become world-renowned for its disciplined teaching methods as well as for its campus, which Meese had designed in 1939-41. A cubic simplicity marked the campus buildings, which could easily be adapted to the diversified demands of the school. Exposed structural steel large areas of glass reflecting the grounds of the campus, and a yellow-brown brick were the basic materials used. The many commissions that his architectural office received after World War II gave Meese unique opportunities to realize large-scale projects, among them several high-rise buildings that are conceived as steel skeletons sheathed in glass curtain wall facades. Among these major commissions are the Promontory Apartments in Chicago, 1949, the Lakeshore Drive Apartments, 49-51, to 51, in that city, and the Seagram Building, 56-58, to 58. in New York City, a skyscraper office building with glass, bronze, and marble exterior that Mies designed with Philip Johnson. These buildings exemplify Mies' famous principle that less is more, and demonstrate, despite their austere and forthright use of modern materials, his exceptional sense of proportion and his extreme concern for detail. The international style, with Mies its acknowledged leading master, reaches Zenith at this time, the United States in the 1950s had a faith in material and technical progress that seemed similar to the earlier German notion of Ghazam culture. Miesian-influenced steel and glass office buildings appeared all over the United States and, indeed, all over the world. It, late work. In the 1960s, Mies continued to create beautiful buildings, among them the Bacardi Building in Mexico City, 1961, one Charles Center office building in Baltimore, 1963, the Federal Center in Chicago, 64, Public Library for Washington, D.C., 67, and most Miesian of all, the Gallery of the 20th Century, later called the New National Gallery in Berlin, dedicated in 1968. A heavy man, baldly plagued by arthritis, Mies continued to live alone in a spacious apartment in an old building near Lake Michigan in Chicago until his death in 1969. The IBM building in 1972 in Chicago was completed after his death. Although Mies attracted a great number of disciples, his indirect influence was perhaps even of greater importance he is the only modern architect who formulated a genuinely contemporary and universally applicable architectural canon, and office buildings all over the world echo his concepts. His work eventually became came under criticism in the 1970s for rigidity, coldness, and anonymity, but it was Mises declared choice to accept the nature of the 20th century industrial society and express it in his architecture. So, that's Mies, in a nutshell. And I think the things to unpack here a little bit are, he... He worked in the sense that projects and architecture were to represent sort of the, the machine for living. And this is very, very um, clear in a lot of the projects that he, he worked on. The Crown Hall at IIT, Barcelona Pavilion, uh, Farnsworth House, and the, um, the new gallery in Berlin. Of all these projects, I've actually only been to the uh, gallery in Berlin, uh, personally. And, well, no, I would say I've actually also been to the Seagram building. But all the other projects I've I've really only seen in, in drawings and, and photos, but they evoke a lot of the same uh, qualities. And I think that's one of the things I respect the most about his style, is that it's not necessarily that it's consistent from one thing to the next but that you can see the kind of rigor that goes into a lot of the projects from one to the next experimenting with that style and allowing the style to sort of come forth um, as he goes from project to project you know the Farnsworth house in a lot of ways is a in my opinion a much better project than It would have been had he been, you know, built another 30 years before that. So, a lot of the influence that I think Mies had, and this might kind of explain why he had this sort of influence he had, is that a lot of his projects, because they weren't necessarily physically built in his early career, it allowed him to really come up with, and I'm partially projecting on this, and, and making an educated guess, but he's known for a lot of these uh, unbuilt projects as well as his built work. And some of the unbuilt work really influenced a lot more in some ways than some of the other built work um, for the profession, for architects alike, and really got the conversation going in a very specific direction, you know, eventually... It, it sort of comes back on itself, and you know, in the 60s, 70s, it's it's not as clear anymore about what the purpose is of all of the sort of clean geometry, and whether or not it's too cold, or um, whether or not it, there should be more use of color somehow, or materiality in a in a different way that's not machine-like. But overall, the the idea that this is a an architecture of uh, a certain time that influenced most of what i would say would be <laughs> the entire last century and still today it's it's a it's a great person to look into more and uh, he's a a very uh, formidable architect in terms of the the designs that he made the theories that he proposed and all of his sort of body of work combined, it just, it evokes something that's very inspiring to at least somebody like me. And I hope that you found it inspiring as well. Be sure to check out some of uh, his, uh, his profile in the uh, link provided in the show notes and see you next time. Hey, so let's get ready not to rumble, (laughs) but to talk about the mail that's in the mailroom. So we have three questions today, and I'm going to go over, I don't know, I mean, I, we, we only had one question last week, but we have three, three entirely new questions this week. And I want to go over them one by one. And the first question is, do you have to be good at math to be an architect? And... I think this is actually a very common question, especially for people who are not inside the profession, but I I think it comes from the fact that it's assumed that the architects are more engineer-like. I think there are architects who take a lot of that on, but there are also architects who tend to Use math maybe more in a programming sense or a in terms of programming spaces and calculating square footages and areas and things like that and financial things, but less about the actual calculations for building. Now, that might be controversial when I say that, but I think in a lot of instances and in a lot of jobs that I've had personally, the firms I've worked at have basically had structural engineers as consultants and... They've basically done a lot of the calculations themselves. Now, that doesn't mean you don't know, need to know the calculations or need to know how to get to the answers. Uh, it's actually part of what they test you on for your license exam. But I think it's it's more of a, if you're good at math, it'll help you, but it's not necessarily a end-all, be-all prerequisite to be an architect. Um, I know a lot of architects and designers who practice within the profession, but are also very, um, they lean very heavily into their creative side more than they do their technical side. And then there are people on the opposite end who lean more into the building construction and technicalities uh, of the construction itself versus the, the more creative, wispy, sort of design uh, portion of, of the profession. So I don't think there's really one answer but it's it's an interesting question because I think it comes from a point of view where, well, you're making a building, so you need to calculate a lot of stuff. Would you need to be good at math to be an architect? And I'd say it depends, especially what you're doing, what kind of architecture you're doing. If you're doing something more related to, like, a skyscraper, then you're probably going to have to be more in tune with the way that the calculations are done and being able to – Sort of confirm things better because of how rigorous and complicated the structural systems might be, but at the same time, you know it—it it depends on who your who's on your team in the first place. And I think this the opposite could be said in some ways of if you're designing houses, there are calculations, but they're not necessarily heavy. It's not like you're, you know, formally doing super high-end calculus equations and, and trying to figure out complicated math beyond anything that you would even do in your first year of college. So I don't necessarily think that you need to be good at math, but it doesn't hurt. I mean, I personally really like math, and I was sort of a math geek in high school and actually ended up taking a math uh, elective in college and almost actually mired in math um, I ended up not doing that because I realized what it would take but I think that math is really important and really personally I think it's really fun but I don't necessarily think it's something that you need to be really good at to be an architect hey so let's get ready not to rumble <laughs> but to talk about the mail that's in the mail room So we have three questions today, and I'm going to go over, I don't know, I mean, we, we only had one question last week, but we have three, three entirely new questions this week. And I want to go over them one by one. And the first question is, do you have to be good at math to be an architect? And I think this is actually a very common question, especially for people who are not inside the profession, but... I think it comes from the fact that it's assumed that the architects are more engineer-like. I think there are architects who take a lot of that on, but there are also architects who tend to use math maybe more in a programming sense or a in terms of programming spaces and calculating square footages and areas and things like that and financial things but less about the actual calculations for building. Now, that might be controversial when I say that, but I think in a lot of instances and in a lot of jobs that I've had personally, the firms I've worked at have basically had structural engineers as consultants, and they've basically done a lot of the calculations themselves. Now, that doesn't mean you don't know, need to know the calculations or need to know how to get to the answers, uh, it's actually part of what they test you on for your license exam. But I think it's it's more of a if you're good at math, it'll help you, but it's not necessarily a end all be- all prerequisite to be an architect. Um, I know a lot of architects and designers who practice within the profession but are also very um, they lean very heavily into their creative side more than they do their technical side and then there are people on the opposite end who lean more into the building construction and technicalities uh, of the construction itself versus the the more creative wispy sort of design uh portion of of the profession. So I don't think there's really one answer, but it's it's an interesting question because I think it comes from a point of view where well, you're making a building, so you need to calculate a lot of stuff. Would you need to be good at math to be an architect? And I'd say it depends, especially what you're doing, what kind of architecture you're doing. If you're doing something more related to, like, a skyscraper, then you're probably going to have to be more in tune with the way that the calculations are done and being able to sort of confirm things better because of how rigorous and complicated the structural systems might be but at the same time you know it it depends on who your who's on your team in the first place and i think this the opposite could be said in some ways of if you're designing houses there are calculations but they're not necessarily heavy it's not like you're you know formally doing super high end calculus equations and and trying to figure out complicated math beyond anything that you would even do in your first year of college. So I don't necessarily think that you need to be good at math, but it doesn't hurt. I mean, I personally really like math, and I was sort of a math geek in high school and actually ended up taking a math uh, elective in college and almost actually majored in math. Um, I ended up not doing that because I realized what it would take, but I... I think that math is really important and really. Personally, I think it's really fun, but I don't necessarily think it's something that you need to be really good at to be an architect. And the next question, please. What software do you use in your project workflow? Well, this has changed over time, and honestly, it changes depending on whether or not I'm doing my personal projects or whether or not I am working at the firm I'm working at now. Um, But I would say the most sort of tried and true path of how I start a project, if I was given the choice right now, I would say that I'd use some form of sketching uh, to start with. And I know that's not really a software program, but I'd argue that if you're not sketching and you're not drawing freehand, you're not necessarily letting the initial kind of creative juices flow to some degree. And... Sketching is a really great way to find the unexpected. So I would say start with sketching. It doesn't have to be analog. It could be digital still, like on an iPad. Um, I actually use my iPad Pro a lot for sketching because it has a wide enough surface to, to sketch, and I have the Apple Pencil, and I'm good to go. So I can sketch sort of whatever I want, um, and that's sort of the first step. So... The next step is to put it into some sort of two-dimensional... Well, I guess there's two paths. One is either in a two-dimensional sort of AutoCAD sort of computer-aided drafting format and take the sketches and put a little bit more of a two-dimensional area to it so that you're at least working with real sizes. Um, The alternative would actually be to start in SketchUp or a simple 3D modeling program like that that's really straightforward, allows you to create very simple geometry and very quickly iterate. Um, The one reason why I really love SketchUp uh, to the point where I teach a course on it is that it's very straightforward and you could pick it up in basically a day. Um, Now, to do it properly, you would need some sort of training or some sort of Um, assistance because there are a lot of nuances that really would help you go further faster especially in an architecture firm but basically you can go from zero to you know 50 percent on your own very quickly and once you have a, a sort of a simple massing you can bring it into another program like rhino or revit or 3ds max or anything really and that would be sort of the next step, I'd say, is actually bringing it into something that you can experiment and play around with in a more technical setting so that you are now you're in a, a realm of, OK, this has to be built. This has to be real. So what are we going to do now? And you're adding thicknesses to walls. They might still be fairly generic, but you're you're creating and establishing a rule set, and a set of parameters for the type of construction that you can do and the types of systems, whether you're using columns or you're using uh, bearing walls or you're using whatever kind of system you want, whatever kind of materials you want. You're bringing real-world logic systems into play. And then the last sort of setup would be um, whether you're going into... Um, construction documents or you're going into renderings i guess it depends on how far you're really taking the project is you can either use internal um, sort of plugins like v-ray there are things that you can you know export the program or the model to entirely and and work with it there so you know if you were working in revit for example, and you didn't want to use the internal renderer and you didn't want to use a plugin, you could send that file to 3ds max and use more of the um, higher end rendering uh, components in that software to really let your project shine. And there's, you know, today it's different than it was even 10 years ago. There are so many plugins and so many gadgets and, and quirky new programs that There's so many choices that it's almost a little bit overwhelming, but I would say that's generally my workflow. I'd start with sketching, put it into either a simple 2D program like AutoCAD or a simple, straightforward 3D program like SketchUp, then bring it into something like Revit where I'm gonna actually do more drafting and and modeling of a real-world scenario. And then from there, whether or not you're doing construction documents, you could still keep it in Revit or you could export it into another 3D program or render it internally in, in Revit and you have kind of a full package there. So there's not too many programs that you really need to practice architecture in terms of the the actual design portion and the drawing and drafting portion. But that might give you a sense of sort of what at least one architect does. And the last question, what is something you deal with on a regular basis as an architect? It's it's funny. I, I have a couple different answers, but I think the one thing that is sort of the through line is I deal with people on a regular basis. And it might not seem that way, especially from somebody who's not working directly in the profession. But like most jobs, you're usually working with or for or on behalf of other people you know i'm working with clients every day i'm working with uh, my team every day you know i i manage people and i have people above me who rely on me to do certain things and one of the things that i think is a, a very important skill to learn very quickly is being able to communicate well and negotiate with all of the different types of people that you'll encounter i mean You might have somebody who is your supervisor who is one type of person and then have another supervisor who you work with maybe a year from now, and they'll be a completely different type of person. Same role, same level of supervision over you, but you are working with personalities and types of people, not just the roles that they're in. And that goes the same way. You know, on the opposite end, if you have people that you are working with you or for you to help you get the job done, you know, one person might have a very specific skill set, be able to render really quickly in Photoshop, but not really know how to put a building together. And somebody might be coming from a construction trade where they know a lot more about the building of stuff, but they don't have a good sense of either uh, high design quality or they don't have the sensibility yet to at least take something from the conceptual level and put it into reality. You know, I think one of the issues is that because there are so many different personality types, every time you meet a new person or you work with a new person, you start to create this library of archetypes almost, of people that you meet, people that you understand. And as you move through your career, the thing that I've noticed is that I take those Sort of um, those people impact me, I guess, and I I take those experiences with me so that I know how to better help and serve the people around me as I move through my own career, and that's helped me out a lot. You know, being able to say, okay, well, this person is a little bit like this other person that I used to work with, and this has worked well with in that scenario, and this has worked well in this scenario, and you start there as sort of a base point. And as you, the audience, know, um, everyone is unique and everyone has different backgrounds. You know, there's no possible way that you would have exactly the same identity as anybody else because even if you have a similar um, upbringing, you didn't have exactly the same experiences and you have a lot of different issues and you have a lot of different things going on in your life and you have a lot of different interests than somebody who might have had almost the exact same life across the street. So I take that into account and I have try to bring a lot of empathy to everyone that I meet so that there is a, let's say an understanding of respect really is what it comes down to an understanding of respect between myself and the other person so that we can have a very good working relationship. And even when you encounter people who don't work well with you, That doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It just means that you have to work a little bit harder or refine the way that you're working with that person to try to make the best of it. And that's something that I deal with on a regular basis is I am constantly working with new unique people and it's, it's given me some really great experiences. Hey everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of architecture time. If you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing to the podcast leaving a review and sharing it with someone you know it would mean the absolute world to me and would really really help the podcast grow for more architecture time and other fun informative content related to architecture and the profession please visit evolvingarchitect.com thanks for being awesome and we'll see you next time